John chapter 10, verses 22 through 42. That's where we're going to be today. If you want to go ahead and begin turning there as we continue this series. And as we are turning there, um, I will uh, just sort of introduce this by uh, saying, you know, we're all familiar with the concept of getting an offer so good that you can't refuse it, right? We, we're, we've heard that phrase, it's an offer so good I couldn't refuse it. Um, well, Jesus offers himself to the world, and ironically, it's an offer so good that the world can't accept it. Um, people want a Christ who simply teaches some good principles that we can follow. People want a Christ that sets a good moral example that we can follow. But we want to know that we've uh, that, that there's a certain amount of of, uh, of control in our own hands, and so we, we, we like ownership of that, and so we want a Christ that teaches and sets a good example for us. Some want a Christianity that's really all about establishing a godly society, and uh, it is, by the way, Christ does teach some uh, important essential principles by which we live. He does set the supremely good moral example for us to follow and cause us to follow it. And it is true that where Christianity saturates a society, it is, will become, at least relatively speaking, a godly society, a more godly society than it was before. But, but those and every other thing that we could think of in that respect are secondary because Jesus didn't primarily offer himself as that sort of Christ. He makes a much better offer, an offer so good that the world can't accept it because the world has expectations and assumptions about what he ought to do or be. He is a different kind of Christ. That's what I've titled the message this morning from John chapter 2, sorry, 10, 10 verses 22 through 42. So let's look there together now. I'll invite you to stand if you're able for the reading of God's word as we listen attentively to his voice. Reading out of the English Standard Version, beginning in verse 22, listen to the word of the Lord. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the, world, the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I have said, I am the son of God? 
If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Well, Father, we're thankful now, as always, for your word, for your willingness, Lord, to speak into the darkness that occupied this world, to shine light into it, to speak truth over against the lies, to transform us and the world that we're a part of by your great grace. And Lord, we gather here together as your people and assembly to worship with one voice and to hear as one people, but also to hear you speak to us as individuals. Lord, and you know every need on every heart, even needs that we don't know ourselves. And so we ask now, as always, that you would speak Oh, Lord, your word, by your spirit, through your servant to your people, for your glory and our good. God, would you move me out of the way and say through my voice what needs to be heard today. The things that I've prepared and the things that I haven't, Lord, by your sovereign grace. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. And you may be seated. I'm going to sort of jump right in here. Uh, this conversation that we just read about that Jesus had with Jewish leaders is sort of a, an occasion for him to receive a question from them and to respond in a way that they're not really expecting and not prepared to accept, frankly. As I said, he's a different kind of Christ, not the one they're expecting, not the one they're willing to accept. And we see that conversation sort of unfold around the context in which they ask the question. Uh, the question itself that the Jewish leaders ask him, the answer that he gives to them, and then their reaction to that answer. And so I just want to unpack it uh, directly under those headings, Look, looking first or considering first the context Verses 22 and 23 tell us that this scene takes place in the temple during the Feast of Dedication. And this fact is actually quite significant, I believe, to the way this dialogue unfolds. And so I want to offer a little bit of background. I think it's worth digging a bit here. Because this Feast of Dedication may be unfamiliar to us because it's not one of the Old Testament biblical feasts. It arose during the period between the Old and New Testaments. We call that the intertestamental period, after the book of Malachi was written, before John the Baptist arrives on the scene prophesying once again. It became known later as the Feast of Lights, and it's celebrated today as Hanukkah, during the same season when we celebrate Christmas. This, the Feast of Dedication that's taking place during that time is, again, what we uh, or has sort of developed into what we know of as Hanukkah. It was a celebration of the victory of the Maccabees over the Seleucids 
uh, in the second century BC. Um, the, the very short version of that history is that a pagan king um, had invaded Judea, taken Jerusalem, and plundered the temple. He removed many of the items of worship and desecrated the temple, even had uh, pigs sacrificed on the altar, erected a, a, a temple to Zeus in the temple. Well, you can imagine how that was received by the Jewish people. You can imagine um, how irate that made them and yet uh, and immediately not necessarily able to do anything about it. It was degrading and demoralizing to a people. And so the Jews revolted and ultimately took back the city of Jerusalem Um, restored and refurnished the temple and rededicated it for worship. It's a great moment in the history of that nation that they said, we're not going to stand for that. They rose up in rebellion, took their city back, refurnished the temple, rededicated the temple, and hence this feast of dedication that commemorates that event. But the great hero of that victory was a man named Judah Maccabee. He was the son of of a priest who became a priest himself. Maccabee was a nickname given to him because it meant hammer. Judah the hammer. He's that, that's that's his profile, a a David-like figure. They hadn't seen anybody like him in generations. And he rises up a strong, courageous, powerful leader that hammers the pagans, drives them out of town, takes back the temple. That makes a great story, doesn't it? So when Jesus is walking in the temple during the Feast of Dedication, the people are celebrating that occasion of great national pride remembering and honoring a great national hero. This would be like if you and I were walking on the Washington Mall in D.C. on the 4th of July. Right? All of the associations we have with that, all the national pride, the patriotism that swells within us, we have people on our mind like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, right? And the Patrick Henrys of the world who say, give me liberty or give me death. It arouses something in us on that occasion that's just percolating, steaming, stewing, right? That's the context in which Jesus is walking in the temple on the Feast of Dedication. That gives context to the question. The question is found in verse 24. The Jews gathered around him, probably not in the most friendly of ways, they gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. The question they really want the answer to is, are you the Christ? The way they ask it is, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? As if the reason they're so opposed to Jesus is because he just hadn't given them enough information. Right? Because he hasn't just come right out and said it. That's their problem. So they imply. It seems quite clear. 
that even if he had just told them plainly, yes, I am the Christ, they would not have believed him or followed him. They've already decided. They hate him. And you remember when he healed the man born blind, they went around looking for all kinds of explanations why he didn't really heal a man born blind. He couldn't possibly have done that. They were so stiff-necked and set against him. So if he had answered directly, they wouldn't have believed. They probably would have used it to set him up. <laughs> they probably would have, would have gone to the Romans and said, hey, this guy, he says he's, you know, he's the deliverer of Israel. He's going to plan an insurrection. You better take care of him. That's, that's probably more like the, uh, their motive. But this is the way uh, unbelievers talk sometimes, right? People, people will act as if the reason they don't believe is because God hasn't done enough. God hasn't said enough. God hasn't given them enough proof or whatever. People don't believe because of their unbelief. I mean, people don't believe because we don't want to believe. Not because it's God's fault. But anyway, that, so that's the question they ask, as if to say their problem is with Jesus. But the more relevant point here is that when they say Christ, when they say, tell us plainly if you're the Christ, they have a different Christ in mind. What they mean when they ask that question is somebody like Judah Maccabee. That sort of deliver, a David-like figure, a hammer. Somebody who's going to come drive the Romans out and make Jerusalem great again. Take us back to the glory days. Make us feel good about our nation again. That's the kind of Christ that they have in mind. And on this occasion, probably more than any other time of year, it is just heightened in them at the very forefront of their thinking. That's what they meant by their question. So even if Jesus gave them a yes or no answer, they would have had the wrong picture in their heads. And that's essential to understand because, again, it's true of people in our day as well, right? That because of the... the all of the factors that form the context in which people inquire about the truth, about a, a sort of the right way of living, about eternal life and so forth, the context that shapes uh, the, the question itself dictates what it is we expect the answer to be and what answers we're willing to accept. That's certainly where the Jewish leaders were coming from. But that's the question. Are you the Christ? Tell us plainly. But the answer Jesus gives them is not a yes or no answer. And again, partly because he knows if he just said yes or no, what they think that means is something altogether different than what he means anyway. He doesn't give them a direct yes or no answer. His answer in verses 25 through 30 there communicates, yes, but I'm a different kind of Christ. He doesn't, he doesn't say it in those words, but it essentially communicates that. If you scan those verses, 25 and 30, notice the things he says. Number one, that I, I already told you. He actually hasn't come right out and said that, but he says, I told you by my miracles, my works testify of me. You don't believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. 
You're just not among them. You can imagine they didn't find that satisfying either. <laughs> or uplifting or honoring to them in the way they thought they deserved honor. In verse 28, he says, I give eternal life to my sheep. What they want is the glory days of Israel. What he gives is eternal life. A heavenly kingdom. A kingdom that's not of this world. Verse 29, he says, No one can snatch them out of my hand. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I give eternal life to my sheep, and no one can take that away from them. And verse 30 then, I and the Father are one. This is the way he asked the question. Tell us plainly, are you the Christ? He says, I already told you by my miracles. You don't believe because you're not my sheep. I give them eternal life. No one can snatch them out of my hand or my Father's hand because I and the Father are one. That's his answer. Yes, but a different kind of Christ. Now let me make a couple of key observations. Really, either of these is not only worthy of a sermon by itself, but even books. I suppose books have been written probably about both of these, but two key observations in these handful of verses there in his response. Number one, that the eternal security of the true believer in Jesus is not based on our goodness, but based on his grace. I give eternal life to my sheep and no one can snatch them out of my hand. No one can snatch them out of my hand. We know there is a sense in which we are, are, are called to follow Jesus, to persevere in the faith, right? Continue in the faith, to strive after holiness. There is a response called for from us. But our eternal security does not rest in our goodness, but in his grace alone. We refer to it sometimes as the perseverance of the saints. It's called that even in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Better termed probably the preservation of the saints because it is the Lord who does the preserving. This is really not a... I, I, this, this isn't a great image, but one that comes to mind. You, you, you see the, uh, uh, you used to see, I don't know that you see this anymore, but there was a trend where, you know, parents would walk their kids around the shopping center or whatever with one of those little leashes. You know, sort of a little harness with a leash on it or whatever. And uh, I think those, those came and went, right? They're out of style now. I, uh, I never, never used one of those. Uh, but... Uh, but anyway, there's a sense in which, in other words, he has done what is necessary to secure us. Even as we wander, even as we drift, even as we lag behind and throw tantrums, he's got a hold of us. It doesn't depend upon us to be sure we maintain our hold on him. He has a hold of us forever. No one can snatch us out of his hand. That's one observation, and again, worth a, a, a whole lot more to be said about that than I'm going to say, but that's it for now. The second observation here, again, that really uh, are, are mind-blowing mind and that books have been written about is that Jesus claims to be God. 
Jesus makes a statement of his deity here. When he says, I and the Father are one, he doesn't just mean, uh, like I might say of my wife, we're one. He doesn't just mean we're on the same page. You know, like a, a husband and a wife disciplining their kids or whatever, and they, they want to go in and be sure they agree about uh, how they're going to deal with this, even if they have disagreements among themselves, right? We're coming in here, and, and your mother and I are one on this. He doesn't mean that. They're not just on the same page. They're not just of the same mind. He's claiming that he, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, that he and the Father share the same nature. You may recall John opens his gospel with really a statement about this very fact. He says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, that's more than we can understand right there. He hadn't even gotten past the first few verses, right? We talked about that, as that's how John opens his gospel. But he means very much to communicate to us what Jesus communicated, that he is of the same nature with the Father. He's co-equal and co-eternal. The fact that we can't understand that doesn't mean we need to substitute it with something we can't understand. So we just need to hold out those two truths that Jesus is man and he's God. That he is a distinct person and yet he and the Father and the Holy Spirit are of one essence. The fact that we can't wrap our minds around that is not reason to substitute it with some other belief. He is of one nature with the Father. And he reiterates this point down in verse 38. The Father is in me, and I am in the Father. They ask, are you the Christ? And his answer says, yeah, I'm a different kind of Christ, one that you're unwilling to believe in. Not here to liberate Israel, but to establish a kingdom that's heavenly and eternal. I'm not just some politically great man, I'm not just some morally good man. I am the God-man. Not just a great man, not just a good man, the God-man, one with the Father, and my miracles testify to my authority and power to accomplish what I came forth to accomplish. That's his answer. And then the fourth uh, aspect of this conversation that sort of frames it out is their reaction. The reaction of the Jewish leaders makes clear that they understood the point that Jesus was trying to make. They didn't accept it. They didn't believe it. They didn't agree with it. But they understood he was making a point that he's of one nature with the Father. Because verse 31 says, they picked up stones again to stone him. Why? Why? Why that reaction? Well, verse 33, they say, for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. That's what they understood he was saying. 
That's exactly what he was saying. That's the, that's the basis of the good news. They say it wasn't good news to them. Just uh, totally defied any of their expectations and assumptions. Totally something that they're unwilling to accept. They have no explanation for how Jesus could perform the miracles he's performed if he really is an enemy of Christ. I mean, see, Jesus goes on to, to say in, in, in response to their reaction, why are you calling me a blasphemer? I mean, if you don't believe me, believe the works that I've done in the, in the name of the Father, from the Father. Well, I don't know about that, but I just know you're a blasphemer. And then it says they want to put him in jail. They're determined to kill him or arrest him, but they want to get rid of him. That's, that's their reaction. The context of the question, again, says a whole lot about what their expectations and assumptions are when they ask the question. So that they ask a question, putting the sort of the onus on Jesus to convince them, and yet they can't be convinced. Because they want a whole different kind of savior. And Jesus tells them, I'm a different kind of Christ. It's an offer so good you can't accept it. And of course, they react accordingly. Stone him or put him in jail, but get rid of him. Now, I'll conclude just by reflecting a little bit on what the relevance is to any of us because, again, one of the dangers is as Bible-believing evangelicals, we hear, we hear such things preached about, such passages preached about, and it all sounds so familiar that it sort of goes in one ear and out the other. But certainly, the world that we're a part of is still willing to accept the kind of Christ that he doesn't offer himself as, right? One who is a good spiritual guide, a guru, a good teacher, one of the best teachers perhaps in, the, in human history. They'll be willing to accept that. One who sets a good moral example for us but doesn't necessarily make too many moral demands, can sort of pick and choose the ones that, right, that are suitable to me. But a human version, the, the, the world by and large likes a human Jesus. Like a very human Jesus, one that they can relate to. Don't much like the divine Jesus, they just can't accept that. And I would say as sort of a footnote, there are others throughout history that have been willing to accept the divinity of Jesus, but without his humanity. That's been another problem. They, again, they can't understand it, and so they just reject it. They say he wasn't really human, but that's, again, another, a matter for another day. The world today, as then, pretty much likes a human Jesus that we can relate to. Even though evangelicals who believe all the things that I've said They'll accept, they'll believe in, profess the Christ who is all the things that I just said 
And yet what you, they, they turn around and, and seem to demonstrate that what they really want is a, is a Christianity that's all about taking our country back for God. We'll go to great lengths, great lengths to renew any kind of kingdom here on earth, take the country back for God, won't lead a single person to God. That, that, that won't uh, really connect the dots and say what Jesus offers his sheep is eternal life. That will transform a society one person at a time. Guess what won't? Laws, legislators, presidents and prime ministers, uh, combat forces. I mean, none of that is, is going to actually establish what, what Jesus came to establish. And I am not, but th- th- one of our problems just as human beings, as we sort of confront such things as if it's an either or proposition. I am not saying, by the way, that God is unconcerned about the godliness of society or that that's irrelevant to the pursuit of Christians. As I said, you get, a, you get a population of people transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, transformed by the gospel, that will change a society. You try to do it the other way around, it'll fail every time. Now, it'll be worse than failing. It'll be worse than failing. But the point is, we have a hard time actually accepting the Christ that Jesus offered himself to be. Really, really for that to be enough for us. That his, that his grace, what he has done for us and what he preserves us through is extraordinary, extraordinarily good. Because he is just a different, a different kind of Christ than we really want. And we find ourselves all the time trying to wriggle out of that little harness. Get away from the leash and go, and go do our own thing. I got, thank you, thank you for the eternal life. I got it. I'm going to go do my own thing now. Thanks for empowering my agenda. Now let me off of the leash. But his grace, his goodness is far better than we can even comprehend. Far better than we can really articulate. But if we will give ourselves uh, to understanding that, to really receiving that, to being changed by that and living accordingly then all of the other fruit will come from that in ourselves, in our families, in our society even. That we'll live by those good principles, that we'll follow his good example, that we will see manifest a more godly neighborhood, city, and society. But it is because of who he is and what he's done, the Christ that he really is. He's a different kind of Christ. 
And that's better news than we ever imagined. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do praise you. You are great and you are good. Beyond measure, beyond imagination. And so we praise you for that. And God, we do confess that there are all kinds of things about our own cultural and historical contexts that shape our expectations and assumptions about what it is we are after when we seek after you, about what it is that we're reaching out to receive when you give yourself to us. And even, have, even having believed it and received it, Lord, that we're prone to wander from it, to go off on tangents, to cease to make the main thing the main thing, and preoccupy ourselves with all kinds of secondary things. So, Lord, we pray that you would renew our sense of awe and who Jesus is and what he's done. That you would renew in us our deep gratitude for that. Lord, and that he would be the Christ who we hold out to a culture that needs him. One who has done Mighty works, even the mightiest, most unfathomable work of rising from the dead. One who has set his love upon his sheep and held them securely in his hand. One who is one with the Father. Lord, would you help us hold out to the world that glorious Christ that he might reign and he does reign. But Lord, that he would be the king that the nations bow down to. Lord, we, we long for the day that you would make that so. And Lord, would you change us, move us in the ways we need to be changed and moved. That we might live out of a place of greater adoration a greater love for one another, that the world looking on would marvel at who you are and what you've done. So Lord, we pray you'd move among us even now. In Jesus' name, amen.